What did you just say? Because depending on your answer, we may have to entertain you. And next you'll say, this is awesome! Hello, and welcome back to the Tomodachi Brothers. This is Ditaku, coming in to you live. I wish. Accompanied by my stalwart fellows, Snek and Mr. Cog. Say hi, guys. What's up? Glad to be here. Awesome. So last time, we covered over the first part of JoJo Season 1. This time, we have a new JoJo, and we also have some new antagonists in the Pillar Men. So, gentlemen, honestly, I think this is more, more my speed than the first part. We return to Joseph Joestar, the grandson of Mr. Jonathan Joestar, and he is also accompanied by a certain fellow you might recognize, Mr. Speedwagon. I believe you had some thoughts on that as well, Mr. Cog. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, so when we left, left off, uh, we left our last antagonist, Mr. Dio, in a, apparently a double-decker coffin. Yeah, the logistics of that are still up in the air, and Iraqi just kind of shrugs. <laughs> at, uh, at the bottom of the ocean. Bunk bed coffin, I'm telling you. Bunk bed, that's, uh, yes. <laughs> so, the year is now 1938. Mr. Speedwagon is now a successful oil tycoon, meeting up with our friend Straito from Phantom Blood. Together, they have gone on to an expedition to Mexico, where they are basically investigating another site of stone masks. And through that process, we are introduced to some new villains. We learn about the Pillar Men, the existence of the Pillar Men, and Straitso decides to double-cross Mr. Speedwagon, puts on a stone mask, turns himself into a vampire because, well, he just thought Dio was just such a cool guy and, and he just really wanted to be a cool psychopath just like him. He saw that neat trick where he made the lady eat her own baby and he was like, man, I want me some of that. Well, I mean, real talk time, he did He did actually go on a tirade about how beautiful and powerful Dio was, and he was unafraid of casting aside his humanity, which is really weird to me when he saw his own best friend. You know the guy where, you know how, you know, for instance, how Iraqi just has everyone named after a rock band or rock musician, and you might go, but Ditaku, who are you talking about in terms of this? His name was Dyer, because Dyer Straits. His name is Straits. I'm sorry, Cog. He's Straits. I'm, I'm going to think of him as Straits. Yeah, they, they refer to him as Strazo, you know. which is the way his name is in Katakana. And I mean, that's just kind of the nature of America. It's the copyright friendly way of, of getting away with it. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, there's very few that they, they, 
don't really change. I believe Sticks is still just Father Sticks, which uh, literally is a one and done character in Phantom Blood gets to keep his name. Yeah, there's some yeah. other ones they really jacked. Santana is not Santana. Yeah, he became Santiago. Which is funny because Santana Santana itself is just a Hispanic name. There's really nothing to it. Like they changed Mariah in part three to Maharaya, even though it's just Mariah is just a name for girls. There, I don't think Mariah Carey is going to care if there's another another character named Mariah, you know? I mean, although it is pretty funny, not going to lie, in Heritage the Future where they had Vanilla Ice actually quoting Vanilla Ice. <laughs> so, I mean. That's true. That was pretty. That was pretty funny. It's a better safe and sorry kind of translation. Yeah, I, I see that. I mean, it's probably the only reason why we're actually getting JoJo here in the West in the first place. I mean, besides the fact that I believe David Productions is actually either owned or co-financed by Warner Brothers because they're they're pretty much using nothing but Warner Brothers music in their stuff. One of the things I do want to comment on is very early we get introduced to the character of Smokey. And Smokey is actually one of those characters I like a lot. I actually think he, he's really entertaining. And, and yet he, he disappears for almost the entire Dude, arc, yeah, no. Uh, which is a little seriously. bit disappointing. But he's one of those characters who has a very short screen time, but a really big screen presence, I think. It's all right. He wins the steel ball run. It's OK. That that is true. Yeah. I think the funniest parts of, of, of Battle Tendency are joseph and Smokey playing off of each other because of course you have the gag that we start with the uh right after he beats straights and he's like oh he's he's coming back he's like what are you gonna do we can outrun him it's the origin of the joe star secret technique and exactly. this is a recurring gag throughout the rest of the series and it all starts here yes it is yeah. and i think they do it twice in this they pull it out at the end too when cards transform yeah now, and the funny thing is, too, at least for me, um, is, I mean, everyone's going to call foul on the fact that, you know, his name is Smokey and he is living in New York in the in the middle of the 1930s. And there is a, a lot of racism about him. But, I mean, he is pretty much the most cool and calm character in a lot of ways. Which is interesting because you, you've also got him hanging around Nazis later on in the show. I will never forget in a certain Chinese underwater basket weaving forum where they're like, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, I never thought I'd actually believe I'd be rooting for the Nazis. And it's like, oof, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes sense in context, guys. I, I, I promise you. <laughs> so the focus of Battle Tendency moving on plot-wise from part one, we're going from... Just the introduction of the stone mask. Part two is really where we kind of flesh out the details and the origin story of the stone mask, how they were created. And it's essentially focused on Joseph and his friend, Caesar, Smokey, Lisa Lisa, Speedwagon, and eventually Mr. Stroheim, and how they pretty much have to focus on protecting this powerful gemstone called the Redstone of Asia. That's a Steely Dan reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're, and they're not exactly subtle about it. No. The, the goal being we're, we have to stop cars from transforming the Pillar Men into the ultimate life forms. And this pretty much kicks off like immediately. Unlike Phantom Blood, where there was a bit of a wind up to the pitch, Battle Tendency doesn't have that. Because as soon as Straits puts the mask on, 
it's pretty much straight action till the very end. I think the only real windup we get is when um, Straits betrays Speedwagon. And Speedwagon's like, no, you're making a big mistake if Joseph hears about this. And then he has a flashback about Joseph beating the crap out of a bunch of hijackers who are like trying to kidnap Speedwagon. And he just does these shenanigans in the plane, knocks the pilot unconscious, beats the shit the kapoopy out of these <laughs> kidnappers and, you know, saves the day. And it's like, that's it. That's all you get. You do not get the, like the three episode windup that you get in Phantom Blood. So it's it's pretty much as Sneck is saying, you know, you're hitting the ground running with Joseph, which is kind of cool. Joseph gets a message through the mob that Speedwagon was last seen possibly dead in Mexico. He immediately jumps on his motorcycle and takes the 2000 mile journey from New Rolls York City to Mexico, Mexico within the span of a scene transition. There is no, absolutely no messing around. Now, we also get to, in this bit, we also discover who the best girl in this part is. And it turns out it's actually Joseph. Isn't that right, Snack? <laughs> oh, yeah. he has. She has tequila and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, though, he makes a very fugly girl, I'm just saying. <laughs> the best part is that's an unlockable costume in Eyes Over Heaven, and he gets a completely different set of uh, voice lines while wearing that outfit, including the calls for his Haman attacks. Yep, it's true. <laughs> they actually had to Tomokazu Sugita, his Japanese voice actor, do an entirely new voice set for it. And I'll tell you a funny story. As soon as we discovered this, because uh, Sneck and I were playing Eyes of Heaven together, Sneck turns to me and goes, you know, we got to unlock this, right? And I go, yep, obviously. That was the first thing we unlocked. JoJo's <laughs> uh, fun. JoJo's is wild. Then we get to meet, we get to meet Stroheim. You mean, you mean Guile? You mean Guile? <laughs> Not Guile. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to hit off the fun sponges right here, right now. Even though he's generally a protagonistic force in that he's fighting against the Pillar Man, Stroheim is not a good guy. The very first thing we see of him is he, there is an entire like small Mexican town in a prison cell in this underground facility that the Nazis built there without the Mexican people's knowledge. And he goes, oh, by the way, you know, one of you should just sacrifice yourselves for this blood ritual that we're about to perform and we'll let the rest of you go. Well, no, it's it's more than that, dude. It's it's also the fact that he's going, okay, so I will let the rest of you go if one of you sacrifice yourself and we'll drain all of your blood for this one ritual. And so, yeah, that's the thing. And then this one little boy volunteers himself and goes, if the rest of them will go free, I will sacrifice myself. And he goes, you truly are the, a you know, you possess a warrior spirit. So you'll live and the rest of you will be sacrificed because this one boy was the only one to actually speak up. And yeah, as as Snek and Cog were saying, I mean, he is a protagonist, but he's also very much a villain, too. He, he's very underhanded and very pragmatic. It really is just, the I think, the, the power of Car, you know, the pillar man and everything that he, he obviously starts helping becoming that protagonist. The whole thing is the Germans are aware of how dangerous these things are. Yes. They rise up. World War II is not going to matter because the Pillarmen are more powerful than any weapon that any country has at this point. Well, they want to weaponize them too. That's the thing. But I mean, can we just all appreciate that one scene where Santana wakes up 
and or Santo Viento, whatever they're calling him. And <laughs> it's Santana when he wakes up. And he just makes a mockery out of all of the defenses that they plant. That is a great scene. That it's this isn't like Dio where he's figuring it out as he's going. It's this is literally just him waking up and he proceeds to figure out almost exactly where the cameras are that are checking him out. He figures out a blind spot, worms his way by making his body into an ooze, because that's one of the things that you'll soon discover with the Pillarmen is that they can actually, they basically have complete mastery over their body's uh, structure. So that's what makes them so dangerous, is they if the things they can't regenerate, they can shift around. So it's almost impossible to kill them normally. So he he's worming his way through the air vents, basically slurps his way into a German officer, and you just have this great scene where the officer is just, he's still alive, and he's, you know, just... Oh, Commander Stroheim, I can't see. <laughs> and they're just like, ice him, just just ice him, just ice him, just ice him. And he just gets back up, dusts himself off. He just starts speaking in the officer's voice again, just, Commander Stroheim, I am the man you woke up from the pillar. How nice to meet you. And yeah, that's more or less when Stroheim's like, oh. We made an oopsie. <laughs> yeah, we made an oopsie. I do kind of wish Santana lasted a bit longer because he that that scene is so great. It's genuinely terrifying the first time you see exactly. it. Exactly. I had read the manga before the anime ever came out. But to see that in motion genuinely kind of gave me chills because I'm just like, these things are so alien to us. Well, I mean, it, it's also you kind of have the grappler Baki situation. For those of who are not aware, the Grappler Baki is a just straight up fighting manga, but it has several points that are border on horror because just the fact that the characters in question are so ludicrously over muscled that it borders on body horror. And that's basically the things that you see with the Pillarmen. The Pillarmen contort their bodies in, I mean, and JoJo is known for body contortion, but this is just straight up unnatural. And Araki just, you can just see him in the, or you just hear him in the background just being like, yeah. And he's going to like spin his arm around like that. And because of the vacuum between his arm spinning and the other arm spinning, it's going to be the divine sandstorm. And he's just like really relishing it. <laughs> so, I mean, not that I, not that I can complain. I mean, I like Claymore and that's <laughs> full of stuff like that too. So. Well, I, I mean, when Dio first shows up as a vampire, he like blows the cop's head off. With just like one swing of his fingers, that is that that definitely commands respect. But then you see Santana emerge from this dude's body, immediately master whatever language is canonically being spoken in that room. Because heaven help me, I don't know. It's probably English. Probably I mean. English. Actually, uh, Medi, not the villain, did a really interesting discussion on that. But then he he takes this German rifle, immediately figures it out disassembles it like on the spot and they're like, Oh, th this is not a caveman. This is not some Oog big club kind of creature this is a terrifyingly advanced mind that we're dealing with right here. I'll have, you know, just as an aside that snack here has actually done several analyses of battle tendency. So you're actually listening to an expert right now. Battle tendency is probably my favorite part bar none, uh, though there are several that come very close. Uh, I think battle tendency is the most consistently, amazing part. Honestly, I, I really like the entire 
uh, you know, just kind of going off on a, a really quick tangent, I really like the entire conceit of the Pillarmen just as a very humanoid and yet extremely alien race. They are really powerful, but you kind of get the sense that there are rules to the way that their bodies and their powers work. And that's really cool. And it's a, unfortunately a shame that the only four members of their species we ever meet are in this part and they all die. And it's just like, ah, oh, Rocky, you had such a cool thing. Technically, two of them die and two of them are dealt with. Oh, are you actually going with the assumption that Santana survived and is just sealed away? Well, he he did. Santana, Santana never died. Even after Joseph drives him into the well, he assumes a form not unlike that of Rock. And the Speedwagon Foundation, from then going forward, has to keep UV lights on him at all time, lest he reform, regenerate, and get back up on his feet. Still, I mean, that, that's just kind of a, that's just a, a, a aspect of this part that I really like. And it just kind of, has always kind of bummed me out that it's like, ah. Yeah, you never get, you never get a revenge of the Pillarmen kind of story arc. I mean, it would be a darn shame if they tried to do that and it got really dumb, like with time travel. It, it sure is good that never happened. I'm, yeah, that would. That, I mean, they never did that in a in in some kind of light novel. That would have been yeah. really stupid. Thankfully, that didn't happen, so we're we're good to go. I mean, yeah, that's true. It would have been nice to have gotten a little bit of a break from just do 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 do. Had it had it been done, because I mean, that is probably one of my favorite parts of battle tendency right there. It's just the introduction of Santana. It's just so it's something brutal (laughs) at the beginning. Yeah. And I mean, the appearance, I mean, memes aside, the awakening of the other three, when you have the infamous scene of them just walking by and they just, just slurp because they have the, the, the very interesting ability that they do not actually eat things in a conventional way. They will just make contact with organic material and just straight up absorb it into their bodies like amoebas. And so they they just brush beside Carl, the friendly Nazi, and then, oops, he doesn't have half of his body anymore. (laughs) And then there is that scene. And if you've been on the Internet in, in anime for any amount of time, you've probably seen it. You've probably seen parodies of it. He was just a kid. What are you going to do? If I don't do something right now, my heart will explode. Proceed to do you even pose, bro? Yep. Uh, Yeah, that that was was the thing. He was just a kid, and they're just posing right there. (laughs) And, of course, then there's the the one thing I really was like, oh, yeah, when I was rewatching it again was all the little interplay between the Pillar Men. Like, for instance, the fact that Wham actually attacks cars. Or I'm sorry, Wham, I thought that I forgot that you are actually a warrior. It has been 2,000 years and I stepped into your shadow. Yeah. This shows right at the beginning that they are very different sort of villains versus what we got in part one with Dio, where Dio's just this, I'm just pure evil character and then you kind of get these pillar men that have this more code of honor it's an interesting thing you pose and i think it is i think you're absolutely on to something but to uh, kind of expand on that cog once again i think it's more the fact that in addition to dio being straight up evil and the pillar men also having not only a code of honor but they also have a plan and a vision beyond just being evil it's more the fact that they also are kind of in 
in control, so to speak, in this regard. They are the ones who have trained for thousands of years. They already are fully aware of what their powers are. And it's Joseph and later Caesar who more or less have to go on this. They basically have to make up that gap, which is kind of weird when you compare this part to other JoJo parts, where it's less about raw power and it's more about knowledge about your enemy's capabilities, which is interesting. And it's very, I, I think Araki does it in a good way, particularly as you see later on with ACDC. Well, that, that does come up in some measure. As soon as the Pillarmen arrive, one of the first things we get to see is Caesar's trademarked ripple ability, the bubble launcher, which on its face sounds super dumb. But when you realize that yeah, I can turn a soap bubble into a absolute destruction anti-vampire weapon. Yeah, suddenly it makes a lot more sense. But these guys are so well equipped that they already have little tools and bangles that completely, just completely invalidate everything they can throw at them. They already understand Haman perfectly. Yeah, their response is, oh, you guys know Haman. We have dealt with Haman warriors before. We know what to expect. And also on that note, uh, the way that Haman is presented in part two, I think is better. Whereas instead of just, oh, it's a martial art that allows you to do magic, basically, there are more rules and more applications in place in this part than in uh, part one. For instance, there Joseph tries to do what his grandfather did and just uh, use Haman through a weapon. Well, turns out that if you do that, you can't do that so good unless you coat it in animal oil first, because it needs something organic in order to use as a vector. You can do it, but it requires a lot more energy, and that wasn't really a thing in part one. But I think this added twist and these added rules make it more uh, interesting in that regard. Yeah, the way Haman flows and ebbs is much more clearly defined. And Jonathan seemed to have this kind of elementalist bent to his abilities where he could use like a red overdrive that would kind of act like a burning power or the silver overdrive that could travel through metal. Joseph's powers seem to it's a bit more like electricity in some ways, whether there seems to be a more of a hard science for how Haman is supposed to work. Well, I mean, a lot of his abilities it makes sense. For instance, like the one that always got me was the bit where George Zeppeli and Jonathan proceed to make a hang glider out of some dead leaves. It's like that looks silly on his face, but then you think about, oh, well, the dead leaves were all at one point living objects. They can transmit Haman. It makes sense. And especially considering that electromagnetism is a thing that animals and especially plants have within them. Well, of course, if you have Haman, they're all going to kind of connect you to each other and become a giant hang glider. I'm like, eh, you know, it makes sense, even in context and it, it being a, a large retcon, it still makes sense. Now, I mean, the entire ability to walk on water, I, I can't explain that one. That was just cool for the sake of being cool, I guess. Kind of like how it lets you Spider-Man up walls. Once again, just cool for the sake of being cool. But yeah, we're um, at that point, we also meet... The master of Haman, I believe, uh, Miss Lisa Lisa. Yes, Lisa Lisa. Once again, another character that Capcom stole. They're very big on that, unfortunately. Although they're not the only ones. Uh, if we ever do Stardust Crusaders, uh, S&K Playmore is going to have to uh, 
answer some questions about certain characters. Yeah, so they'll have a few characters to answer for too. <laughs> Which I think is really cool because even though she very rarely uses her Haman, uh, the way she imbues it is very indicative of the fact that she's done a huge amount of training in that regard. So it's, it's kind of cool. And even though it is very sparse, the times that she does use it are all more powerful because of that. And we also get to meet probably my favorite of the Pillar Men, Mr. ACDC, and have him do his thing because uh, he shows up. He the Despite the agreement they made with uh, Joseph, when the three of them woke up, ACDC decides, you know what? Nah, I'm just going to kill him. And yeah, that, that probably is my favorite fight in the entire, this entire part. And he's a pretty cool character just because, honestly, his ability is just so out there that even within the confines of Pillarmen being weird supernatural body horror monsters, the fact that you can superheat your blood and fire it as flamethrowers is just like, okay, that's just straight up magic. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of an explanation, but yeah, it was kind of magic. I mean, he might also be my favorite because he kind of captures Joseph's trick and uses it against him a few times. Now you're going to say I was only pretending to be. Uh, uh, he captured my favorite trick. <laughs> that meme will never die, as far as I'm concerned. Is it obvious to the audience that we have read these <laughs> read these comics way too much? Because we have. I'm just. I'm just <laughs> if you thought the fanboying was over, think again. Oh God! You know, you know what's going to happen. It's one of two things. Either you know this is going to have everybody be like. Zoo. Oh boy, talk about JoJo! Or it's gonna be, you know, guys go, oh god, we gotta vote for anything but JoJo because they're just gonna fanboy <laughs> for another episode. Did you see episodes one and two? <laughs> that's that's true. Well, we have a plan for that moving forward. But yeah, we'll talk about that later. And then after that, it kind of becomes a back and forth because both sides are trying to keep the other from knowing things about the Stone of Asia before the final climactic battles that leads to the Burning Colosseum and the ultimate life form. I believe this is Snack. This is your favorite bit of the entire thing because uh, you won't shut up about the freaking chariots and vampire horses. <laughs> the, okay. Okay, you gotta remember, nothing like this has happened in the comic thus far and nothing this cool happens again. <clears throat> I'm just, uh, there, I said it. Fight me. <laughs> I don't know. I would argue that the first run, the first bit of a steel ball run has elements of this, but you're, you're kind of right. The entire half race. Half yeah. They don't really do anything like power that battle. Yeah. Because a lot of people, yeah, because a lot of people at, at that point in steel ball run don't have stands and it's basically just gyro and Sandman who really have like supernatural abilities. So yeah, I, I suppose you're right, which is kind of a shame. So Okay, for, for those who haven't seen it yet and want to know what it is I'm gushing about, imagine Joseph and Wham in chariots being pulled by vampire horses that somehow got turned by the stone mask. Don't even ask about the logistics because I don't know. <laughs> you know what happened? You, you know what happened? And I saw a comic about this. He must have specifically made masks for horses. <laughs> of course Which he implies did. that he actually... 
uh, implies that he actually had to go through the entire acupuncture technique of finding the points in the horse's body, the brains that push them further into evolution the way that the, the stone masks do. I wouldn't put it past them. Which is just, yeah, and that's just hilarious slash kind of scary to me. That he's like, oh, for this particular battle, I'm going to have to do acupuncture on horses in order to figure out how to make them super carnivorous horses. Because <laughs> that's their whole thing is they want to move to becoming. Yeah, they want to find the, the pinnacle of all beings. Exactly. I've, I've even seen um, some fan videos and stuff where they try to make the argument that Cars is actually kind of a good guy. Because he basically, his main goal, like we talked before, unlike Dio, is not just to be evil, but he just wants to be the best that ever was. You you see, Dio is what happens when a Pokemon trainer loses their way. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, I mean, here's the thing, though. Is a dog that bites a human, is it evil? I mean, that's basically the entire thing with cars. He wants to become the ultimate predator. His species feeds off of humans. And now he wants to ascend beyond even that. So, I, yeah, I would agree on a certain level. He is not evil because he's not doing it out of malice. He's doing it actually out of fear. And it's more fear of the unknown. But he's he's tackling that fear in a way of I will overcome the weakness that my my species has uh, to sunlight. So it's more a fear of, you know, the fact that, you know, I can't drown we don't die in fire. We There's nothing that eats us because if anything comes into contact with us, we automatically eat them. So what can kill us? The sunlight. That's it. And we're so long-lived that we don't really even need to breathe that much. And according to the manga, they need to eat only about one every hundred years. Yeah. So it, it makes sense. But at the same time, though, I think – that given that context, I still believe that it's not necessarily a bad thing to oppose him, though, just for the very nature that humans don't want to get yes, eaten. Yes. So it's kind yeah. of, <laughs> I mean, high on the priority. List, I mean, I understand dying. Yeah. As Snick, you know, brought it up, Medi, not the bad guy, once again, did a video about cars and the, that argument that you actually brought up there, Cog. But at the same time, though, I'd have to disagree with him and I'd have to disagree with that argument that. Yeah, I mean, as much as I think Cars is a cool guy and I can understand that that desire to overcome your fear of death, I'm not going to, you know, go Joseph and Lisa Lisa and Caesar are bad because they're opposing him. I'm sorry. So I was just bringing up that people have made the argument. I usually prefer to side with the humans. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I get you. I get you. You know, some of my best friends are human. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So <laughs> I get you. I mean, I mean, not not going to lie. Uh, as I mentioned, Snack has actually done a something of a fan fiction series about that where ultimately the Joe stars and the pillar men or pillar beings and come into a understanding of sorts. So, I mean, I, I can understand that. Uh, we'll get into the spoofs in the after hours back to the chariot race because it's awesome as it is. It's a, a huge circular track with these two guys who are both huge, like Joseph is like six foot six, I think, canonically. And Wham just like hovers over him because he is so huge. Yeah, he's like 192 centimeters. So, yeah. About so that. they're going around this track and every lap they're just given these choices between weapons and they just get into crazier and crazier and crazier possible outcomes. 
where like Joseph grabs the biggest crossbow available and like the vampires start making fun of him. Like, oh, you're a you can't pull the, the, the drawstring back all the way because you're too puny. <laughs> and Joseph then uses a fall off his chariot to lock the ball into place and allows Wham to take a shot with a much smaller crossbow to line up his trajectory for him. And also, you can do this in the PS1 fighting game, and Dutaku learned to hate it very, very, very quickly. But the thing with young Joseph is that he can do that in the fighting game, and I'm really good with young Joseph. Ooh. Yes, yes, it's not fun, because the, the way that the game registers this is it fires the crossbow bolt into the edge of the screen, and it loops back around, and you don't think about it until it's coming right at your back. So there's no way of defending against it unless you are cognizant of the fact that it's going to be hitting you from the back. So it's it's a very underhanded, very Joseph way of addressing that this is a 2D fighting game. So I think probably the coolest thing, though, was the fact that we see beforehand, you, you kind of talked about Joseph, but in terms of Wham, we see beforehand, we got a taste of what he could do and the fact that he could, uh, his entire thing is manipulating wind. Each of the pillar men can kind of manipulate a certain element. ACDC could, could manipulate fire. He could supercharge his blood and fire it out of his body like uh, a flamethrower. Wham can manipulate air around him using his horn and the motion of his muscles. And cars can manipulate light using these uh, bone blades that extended from his wrists. But the thing being with him is that as he's going through the fight, he's pulling out more and more esoteric ways of using this wind manipulation in order to mess with uh, Joseph, which I think is pretty cool, honestly. So he's not just limited to, oh, I have the divine sandstorm and that, that's that's all I could do. It's like, no, he can like... <laughs> He, he can wreathe himself in a hurricane and stuff, and he's kind of difficult for, you know, even a Haman-empowered human to come near him at that point. So I, I give you a lot of shade, but it is a very cool battle. Honestly, more cool in certain ways than the battle that comes afterwards. The so. entire chariot battle is just seriously awesome. I love the escalation, too, when they're like, oh, you know, after after Jonathan gets his weapon and then they're moving on, it moves up. He's like, oh, I'm going to get the whole freaking pillar now. Oh, how you like that? Yeah, Wham just <laughs> rips the pillar out of the ground and is like, how do you like this weapon? And Joseph's like, oh, that has got to be against the rules. <laughs> no, it's it's totally, totally legit. I mean, they're the ones making the rules, though. But the funniest thing is when he does that, there's still this vampire hanging on on the far end of it, just screaming at the top of his lungs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's honestly, that's such a good fight that it's kind of sad because the the battle against cars is kind of lackluster, honestly. It is. I would agree. I mean, as cool as it is to see the various different ways that cars and then later ascended cars, because, oh, uh, by the way, uh, cars gets the redstone of Asia and proceeds to ascend to become an ultimate life form. And there's this one page in the manga where they proceed to very, very, very granularly explains what perfect cars' abilities are, including because I can't let you down, guys. Sex equals useless. <laughs> there. 
There, you're welcome. Uh, and they kind of even have an aside about this in the anime, but even there in the fact that they have, and I'm so glad they kept this because once he does ascend, the first thing he does is turn his arm into a squirrel, which then proceeds to rip the head off one of the Nazis. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad they kept that. That was such a weird way for him to test his powers. It's just he doesn't really do anything interesting with it beyond that. Yeah, he turns some of his body into a crab in order to prevent getting burned by when they knock him into a volcano. But, I mean, he he gains wings, okay? I would agree. I feel like the Cars fight is a bit rushed in that sense. Because it's like he introduces all these cool kind of powers and things that he can do and then they don't really I, I half agree and I half disagree and, and here's why. We have just got done dealing with ACDC and Wham, who are already terrifying and a normal person would not win in a one-on-one with them. Suddenly we have Lisa Lisa who gets pretty much punked, let's be honest. She she got uh, yeah, rather she, unfairly. Yeah. She didn't even fight, honestly. She just got taken out uh, immediately. So Joseph has the, the Tarzan battle, and he's already exhausted. He's had these fights back-to-back for the most part, including the battle at the hotel, which is another thing unto itself. So he's had, like, three battles. Within, like, the past four hours, he's undergone three really intensive battles. And, and suddenly, Ultimate Cars is here, and Iraqi wants to demonstrate just how dangerous this is immediately. What does he do? He makes a squirrel that eats a Nazi. <laughs> just as an aside, when I was actually reading Battle Tendency for the first time, I was on. Okay, so I'm going to date myself a little bit. I was on AOL Instant Messenger at this point, and I was messaging with Snack, and I'm going, dude, he just turned his hand into a squirrel and ate a Nazi. <laughs> and Snack's like, no, no, no way. No, no way. And I sh- sent him the, the, the page, and he goes, Holy crap, you did. <laughs> so, yeah. So then, now now that we have this kind of established, we then run into, okay, it's time to get the battle underway. Absolutely no wasting time whatsoever. So what do we do? Uh, machine guns. Okay, machine guns don't work. Conventional methods out the door. Not that, not that we thought they would work, but we, we have established scientifically they don't. I was about to say, they didn't work against straights. I mean, there were several orders of power above straights now so then joseph hijacks a nazi aircraft because it's awesome let's be real (laughs) and just like starts gunning cars down and then this part was trimmed down a little bit in the anime joseph actually kind of dogfights with cars and cars shoots off his feathers which harden into like shells that smash into the ship and become piranhas and start trying to eat joseph which we don't actually get to see in the anime, and that was a little bit disappointing. I, I understand why it was skipped, because ultimately it's superfluous, and, and Joe stars don't retain wounds between panels. <laughs> now Joseph's like, okay, okay, all conventional methods are out the door. I'm just going to run this mofo into a volcano. And he does. And the explanation, I'm sorry, no matter how many times I read it, I, I can't get over how fantastic the answer to this is and not in the good sense in the literal this is from the world of fantasy definition of fantastic because he makes a shell not unlike a crabs or an armadillos which immediately starts melting then he creates a layer of bubbles as a 
like insulation, and then another shell, which then melts, and he repeats this over and over. The way it works is that he had the shell, but it had air between it and the thing, so both the shell and the air that was in the shell acted as insulating layers, which would allow him to regenerate the shell and create a new shell layer and a new air layer. So basically, he was able to protect himself against the magma, by this constant shedding and regrowing of shit. It, it's still dumb, dude, but there is kind of a logic. Yeah, there, there, there's an internal logic, but at the same time, if you're that close to magma, you wouldn't melt. You would vaporize. Yes, but dude, he's also the ultimate life form. It shows you just how terrifying Cars actually is. And then as one final taunt, he uses the hum on himself, and it's like a thousand times more potent than Joseph's ever has been. And it's mentioned way back at the start of part two that if you hit a regular person with Haman, you're going to cause pins and needles or maybe make them pass out if you hit a vital area. Oh, yeah. By the way, it's also shown basically straight up said by Wham and ACDC that the ice power that Dio and uh, Dio has where he killed Dyer by just sucking the heat out of them is just an intrinsic factor that the pillar men have. So even though they are technically naturally natural life forms that were evolved, they themselves can no longer use Haman because of this. So just just so this has been established, because they're not undead or they're they're not artificial the way that the vampires and the zombies are that we encounter in Phantom Blood. Sorry. Sorry, Snake. I just wanted to put that on the table, too. It's an important distinction to make. So this is how just how terrifying this ultimate being is. And, and even though they haven't been introduced as a concept yet, I maintain that perfect cars would be more powerful than any stand user who follows in his steps. Well, dude, I mean, I've heard it posited that Wham could pretty much kill any stand user in Stardust Crusaders, including Dio. And I'm kind of hard pressed to deny that he's just combined with his training and his wind abilities, plus his ability as a pillar man. I don't think there's anything that almost any of them can do. I mean, the only one maybe that could pose a threat to him is Arabia Fats. And once again, the guy proved he can wreathe himself in fog such that the UV radiation is diffused and then he can just walk around even in the middle of the day. Yeah, it's tiring to him because the pillar men are nocturnal by nature, but I mean, he can do it. You have to do some really wacky, like killer queen level in order to actually be able to kill them with stands. But on the same time, though, I think that honestly, the move towards stands was ultimately for the best in terms of the series. For the sake of pacing, it's not like you could have, oh, we have vampires. Now we have super vampires. Now we have super, super vampires. Yeah. We have super vampire too. He did kind of ride himself into a little bit of a corner at that point. You know, you know where you know where that goes. That goes to Lunar Nights, and we both know that how sad that was. <laughs> yeah, let's let's uh let's not. That's that's Lunar Nights on the DS, by the way. That, that's a fantastic Kojima game, but it also who's the bed with the rest of the Boktai series that it's part of. It basically retcons everything at the end and it makes it <laughs> awful. Sorry. Yeah, no, that, that is true. But moreover, the most glorious moment in battle tendency is Joseph is on his knees. He is defeated. He had an arm blown off and cars goes in for the kill. And Joseph just kind of instinctively puts up his remaining hand to shield himself 
And in his palm is the red stone. It fires off like this Haman laser due to Kars' own arrogance, which sets off the volcano. And as Kars is being pushed skyward, not only do rocks impale him, but Joseph's severed arm slams into his throat as he is saying, you planned this, didn't you? I love that part. I love that part. And Joseph goes, I planned everything from the beginning. And it zooms in on him. He's like, well, obviously not, but that'll piss him off. <laughs> just a lot of luck. And that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Joseph <laughs> is the best Joestar. And then we, we come to our end where it turns out that even though everyone thought Joseph was dead, he actually wasn't. And then we all have to wonder, first off, how Lisa Lisa wasn't immediately scooped up because, I mean, I'm not ordinarily a milf hunter. <laughs> oh well, God. yeah. I mean. But also, one has to wonder. One has to wonder because later they kind of have a where are they now thing where they show off all the characters. And then they get to Stroheim and they go, he died in the Battle of Stalingrad. And you have to wonder. Because at this point, the man is now more cyborg than machine because he keeps getting into situations where he is just straight up bisected, torn apart. And so he has the recurring element of German science is the best in the world. <laughs> I almost died in Mexico, but now I'm a cyborg. <laughs> and yet this guy, this guy who has literally been killed like four times actually does by the farm, and you have to wonder what Soviet monstrosity the Russians are like, oh, oh no, we got to bring out the bear. And it's like this giant mechanical bear thing or something. You got to wonder what they did to him in order to actually finally do him in because, I mean, it sure as heck wasn't cutting him in half. It sure as heck wasn't, you know, decapitating him. It sure as heck wasn't cutting off his leg. Oh no, Stroheim has all of these things done to him. And he still lives because he's a cyborg and German science is the best in the world. But yeah, that, that's that's the part that kind of, you know, just uh, makes me go, hmm, whenever I read Battle Tendency. So so on the whole, Battle Tendency is much faster paced, much more adventure than Phantom Blood, but it's a very logical follow up. Oh, yeah. Jonathan, Jonathan was kind of the, the messianic figure of the family. Joseph is the, I would say, the redeemed sinner, prodigal son, if you want to get biblical he, about he this. And it flows very, very cleanly from part one to part two. And I mean, unlike certain other parts, like as much as I love part four, the way they kind of go from part three to part four, it's, yeah. Yeah. Some of the transitions are not the greatest. Yeah. Even though I love part four, I'm like, eh. And then even even if you think about it, the transition from two to three, it's a little weird because it's like we have stands now and it's it's when it didn't really exist before in the narrative. And but that does give us the unique element that eventually becomes Jojo moving forward. I don't know. Honestly, I think that the way that they present it with another 50 year time jump. And then they actually show off older Joseph with his weird owl, you know, mixtape and his Walkman and his hatred of the Japanese. I, th I think, I think it was really well done. Honestly, I, I'd have to disagree with you on that one. Cog. I just meant the, the, as far as the narrative elements of like, suddenly, you know, it went from this sort of fist of the North star. It's more about people having, 
you know, this kind of energy power into now where we have sands. There is kind of an explanation to that, but I'd rather cover that in after hours. I mean, yeah. And to be perfectly honest, once again, kind of as I put in our after hours, uh, please, please look for after hours. I have a gigantic tirade about that. If you love me just mincing words and being a giant sophist, please check it out. But I mean, the way I was kind of talking before about how Araki steals liberally from manga and anime of the period, uh, much like how part one and part two kind of steal heavily from Fist in the North Star, part three and just the fact that Jotaro and Kakyoin are both very much in the, and I mean, I suppose even in part four um, with uh, Josuke, I mean, they're all very heavily into the Boncho movement that was very popular in the mid to late 80s. And you kind of see that in Sakigake Otojuku, where pretty much every character is a Boncho, which explains him being, you know, the silent one-liner spewing and not because he's autistic like you've posited. I, I, I really like Jotaro. He's just, I think he's a little bit more of a subtle character in that he's kind of this, I'm going to show you who I am through my actions versus I have to sit and go on these long monologues. My, my favorite, my, the words I hate most are work hard and my, my second, you know, least favorite are hard work. Oh no. I mean, not gonna not gonna lie. Probably my favorite part of Stardust Crusader is or Stardust Crusaders is Joseph's just copious amounts of anguish. Just the amount of anguish that they make Sugita say is just it's a treasure. No, I mean I, I kind of agree. Plus the fact that Araki has gone on record saying that Clint Eastwood, particularly in the Dollars trilogy, are influences for Jotaro. So you kind of see it's like, yeah, he's he's going to be a man who says very little, but he's going to say a lot with his actions. I mean, we're getting a little bit into part three, but we, we have kind of mentioned him. But that's, I mean, part of the reason I like Jotaro so much, because, you know, a lot of people try to pull off that stoic, dark, brooding hero. And I would actually argue Jotaro is an example of it kind of being done well. Yeah, because he actually is done with that in mind rather than, oh, I'm brooding. Oh, oh, look at me. I'm brooding. Oh, oh, oh. By the way, I'm Batman. Oh, uh, brooding. Right. But I mean, it's all a front, though. He puts on this big front of like, oh, I don't care. I don't care. Shut up. I don't care. But then he still goes to save the world. He still goes to help his mom. I've seen some really cool videos on him, which I kind of agree on. It's like when you go back and look at those panels of Jotro, it's like, when bad things are happening, he's kind of turning it all in on himself. And where everybody else is very outward characters, Jotaro kind of just when bad stuff happens, he's kind of like, you get these looks on his face where you can tell he's just kind of like blaming himself. He's He puts up this big hard front, but at the end of the day, he, he obviously cares. He saves the freaking world. He goes all the way to the end, you know, to fight Dio. That, that, that is a character trait I think every member of the Joestar family embodies. And they all embody it in a slightly different way. I kind of have to agree with Cog on this one, at least with Jotaro, because, for instance, Kakyoin on several occasions just could very well have just straight up killed him. And Jotaro, when given presented with the opportunity of just leaving him and letting him die... He is just, you know, just kind of sighs and goes, well, I guess I'm skipping school today again just so he can save Kakyoin and goes through with the procedure of actually saving him, even though it almost kills Jotaro. And oh, by the way, they don't have a healing stand, unlike in later parts. And yet he has this tendril going up to his neck through his thumb. 
So, I mean, we're getting way too into part three. We'll have to we'll have to go into more of that, hopefully at a future man, point. We, we are going to have to do Stardust Crusaders at some point because we can't just let it end here. Yeah, we're, we're, we'll have to press forward with that at some point. We, 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 we will. We definitely will. Which is which is probably a good thing. I have not actually watched the anime version of Stardust Crusaders. I watched the first season, but yeah, I kind of fell off because I'm like, I've I've read the manga. Like, yeah. it, it was the first part we got. It was in the PlayStation game in totality. We, we, we got it before we got everything else. So I just didn't. Yeah. More to the point that there is a certain heroic thematic stoicism in each Joestar. Jonathan was the unyielding wall, the, the one who would not break. Then there was Joseph who pretended to be stupid and was in fact actually trying his hardest. And then you have Jotaro who internalized it. All of them are, are carrying the weight of the world in their own respective ways. And as Speedwagon put it best, you no, know, it sounds like an exaggeration, but these men really have saved the world. So final thoughts overall for season one, not just battle tendency, not just phantom blood, but the anime, which we've been, which we've been watching Season one of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Honestly, I mean, and I know this, you could probably, you know, throw this back in my face, go, yo, Ditaku, you're a giant freaking fanboy. Honestly, I, I th- would have to give it a, a nine out of ten. I thought that I would hate it more because I've seen more JoJo. We have, we have gotten more of the series in the West and we just have more JoJo now. And so I'm just like, ah, it's the first two parts. I'm going to hate it. I really wasn't my favorite anyway, but I'm like, no, actually, it was like I was getting more into it. Like, yeah, you know, there's a lot more to it that I liked than initially when I saw it way back when. So I absolutely agree with you because I I had the same experience where I kind of like was not thrilled when going through parts one and two. Revisiting it because at the same time I was watching the anime, I was going back and revisiting the manga. But um, I would say the anime has definitely kind of helped increase my my overall feelings for part one and two. I would still, I don't know, I still got to say for me, I'd probably put it at about an eight out of 10 just because, just because of the editing really, because of the turning down the violence and everything like that, where, where certain parts are not quite as satisfying as they are when you go through the manga. Obviously, I'm I'm the dissenting voice here. I was excited for parts one and two and super happy they started with parts one and two. Uh, because when they started saying Jojo anime, they didn't really clarify immediately how they were going to do it. So I was afraid we were going to get more Stardust Crusaders and skipping parts one and two, which was already a bit of a gripe that I had at the time anyway. I understood the editing. I understood the reasons behind it. As I talked about in the last episode, they weren't going to get it on TV otherwise. Part one and two are very different. Jojo changes a lot in the parts to come. But I think they serve as that foundation where it may have been in its infancy, but it showed the building blocks that would become the Jojo formula. You're right, actually, because especially especially with battle tendency, because it's like if you think about it, Dio wouldn't become the big epic villain if it wasn't for the stone map, you know, because of cars and everything kind of launches him into that epic status and, you know, into part three. If we, if we look at it more mechanically too, you can kind of see a prototypical way that the stand battles are presented with Joseph. And Joseph is really perfect for this because he's always less powerful 
than his opponent. So he always has to think in a very cool tactical way. So it's always about what are the, what are the essence of a stand battle? Figure out what your opponent's power is, find some way to counter it. Oh, he's going to have a way to counter that, but then you have to counter that as well. And that is the essence of the, the way that the battles in battle tendency are. For instance, against ACDC, oh, well, you have to jut your veins out in order to, you know, shoot your flamethrowers. Well, I have, you know, wool strings that can shoot out and latch onto your veins when you jut them out in order to attack me. Well, I can cut your strings. Well, you see, I actually anticipated that you'd find my strings, so I added an additional line of strings, so now I can attack you still. And I mean, it's the same line of reasoning as stand battles. It's just that they don't both have ghosts standing behind them while they're doing it. I mean, if that makes any sense at all. Snack, zero to 10, season one of JoJo. I'm going to say a solid nine. My complaints are very mild. What was cut from the manga to screen conversion is very light. Uh, it retained the spirit, the voice cast, English and Japanese liked it. Awesome job. Oh, that's something we didn't mention. Uh, Subverse the dub. Oh, man, I, I have to I have to rep for the sub on this one just because Tomokazu Sugita, the voice of Joseph Joestar, is one of my favorite voices in just voice work in general. He voices Gintama. Oh, that's another thing, too. Oh, he does Ragna the Blood Edge in Blaze Blue. He does a bunch of guys. He, he is just he is just a great, great character actor, and I love his stuff. So I, as much as you like Richard Epcar, I, I have to, to rep for the subs on this one. I like the dub. I just I prefer the sub on this one. I respect every one of the Japanese voice cast because I, I watched the Japanese version first before I ever saw the dub, just because that was the airing order. But I'm going to lean towards the dub. Not only does Richard Epcar really capture Joseph's frenetic energy, he also is able to actually include the otherwise informed character attribute of Joseph's British accent, which is completely lost in all other versions. Yes, I would agree with with Snack on that in that it's like with the dub, you have all these European characters. The Germans actually kind of sound German, you know, and it's the you kind of get the intended narrative experience of these kind of European characters in with the dub. Uh, last last thing on the, on the dub, though, dub versus sub. For the Japanese actors and the dub, we actually have a very amusing little, like, uh, connection that Sneck and I noticed when we were watching this. Richard Epcar, who voices Joseph Joestar, voiced in the dub of Bobobo that happened in the mid-aughts. He voiced a Bobobo. But you want to know, here's a crazy thing. For the Japanese dub of Bobobo, the same actor, I, I, his name escapes me, but the, the same dude who did Dio and does Dio in part one, in part three, and in bits of part four, it's the same guy who does Bobobo in the Japanese version. <laughs> real, real talk time. I just, I just had to add that just because I love little connections like that. All right. I think that wraps up our chat on battle tendency unless in season one of Jojo, unless anybody has anything else to add. Set, I think we summed it up nicely. So gents, I, I have to rep for this because if we did not have this series. We would not have Stardust Crusaders because David productions would not have the funding to do this. But I have to say for this upcoming roulette, mine is going to be, Hyperdimension Neptunia, the animation. 
I'm going to put forward a new series that actually just recently concluded, and I'm going to put forward My Roommate is a Cat. It's a 12-episode OVA series, and it is so unbelievably wholesome, and I think everyone should watch it. I think I might have gotten diabetes from it. I watched it with Snack. It is pretty darn cute. I mean, being a cat owner, I, I can hashtag relate, so. And I'm going to recommend, just because I'm a mecha fan and I have a lot of nostalgic feelings about this character, um, SSSS Gridman. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go, I'm going on to my anime list right now. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, Konosuba, episode one. That's another new series. So that's a, a random choice? Yes. Number one, Itaku. Hyperdimension Neptunia. So, I mean, this is actually really cool because this gives us a level of continuity. This is immediately what David Productions did the next season after they finished up JoJo. And let me tell you, having been in a certain Chinese basket weaving forum, people got mad <laughs> about this. Thank you for listening to the Tomodachi Brothers Review Podcast, produced and recorded by The Hipster Snack, Ditaku, and Cog. Sound design and editing by executive producer Sean Taylor Brown with Cog Sound Engineering. Music written and performed by Sean Taylor Brown with Costas Voss of Core Insight Studio on the drums. We hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Tomodachi Bros Anime Podcast. I'm one of the co-founders and co-hosts of the podcast, The Hipster Snack. If you want more content from me, I have my own YouTube channel, The Hipster Snack. Links will be available everywhere I can spam it up until I get a custom one, but all in due time. I do weekly game reviews, and in the future, probably more than that. Look forward to it, and I'll see you there and on Twitter, at Hipster Snack. See ya!